I once served at a church where uh, Easter Sunday services began every year with the senior pastor uh, stepping to the front of the stage and shouting, Christ is risen, and everybody in the church would respond, He is risen indeed. And I got to be honest, it, it always felt a little cheesy to me, um, but I was reading uh, recently that it's a saying and a response, an ancient response that goes all the way back uh, to the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, even before the communist revolution. And the tradition goes that Christians uh, around Easter time uh, would typically, they'd, they'd meet each other on the street or they'd see each other at services and they'd greet one another with these words, Christ is risen. And then that person or individual would respond, he is risen indeed. When communism eventually took hold in Russia, uh, religion was outlawed and Easter Sunday services were replaced with communist rallies that everyone was expected to attend. And on one particular Easter Sunday, where about 10,000 people were ordered uh, to gather in a public square, uh, much like this, and the communist leader at the time stepped to the mic and podium and addressed the crowd on how Christianity is evil and how religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, when the communist leader had completed this long address to the crowd, he asked if there was anyone, any volunteers that were willing to step forward uh, to speak on behalf of communism. And well, after a long, uh, tense silence, a teenage boy finally stepped forward. And as he approached the podium, uh, the communist leader reminded him to only speak positively, to only speak what he called communist truth. Well, this young man uh, stepped to the podium with all eyes from the crowd fixed on him. And at the very moment, uh, these communist soldiers surrounded him, circled around him with their rifles pointed at him. And, uh, in the moment, he took one deep breath. And before this very crowd on this Easter Sunday that had been overshadowed by this communist rally, uh, the young man stepped to the mic and shouted out the words, Christ is risen. And at that very moment, the guns fired and this young man uh, dropped to his death and you would think that in that moment all the damage had been done but uh, people have reported that in that very moment uh, the one thunderous sound uh, that overwhelmed the sound of those rifles on that particular day was the response of the crowd who in unison replied he is risen Christ has risen indeed 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross and died a horrific death uh, for you and me. Uh, and it was all a part of God's plan, but death couldn't keep him. Uh, the grave could only hold him for so long. And that is why uh, we celebrate uh, Easter and the resurrection, and not only one time a year, uh, but that's why we celebrate it every day of the year. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Well, a big welcome to all of you, uh, whether you're at our Carmel or Noblesville campus, or maybe even listening in online. Uh, I'm really excited about this opportunity uh, to share with you today. Um, as you may know, uh, we've been in a series here at Genesis Church uh, in 2013, a series called The Story. Uh, where we're reading through the Bible in a year and talking about it on Sundays. And we're using this book called The Story uh, as a resource, as a help in that. Uh, last week, we looked specifically at Jesus' final week leading up to his death on the cross, uh, talking about four specific locations where Jesus visited, and then four lessons we learned from him uh, in those locations. 
Uh, today, we're in chapter 27 of the story, a chapter titled The Resurrection. And uh, if you've got your own Bible with you and you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to go to John 2024. 20, or maybe you've got your smartphone with you today and you use something like YouVersion. Uh, we encourage you, we invite you to go there with us uh, right now. The truth of the resurrection is simple Christ is risen, uh, Jesus lives. And because he lives, um, you know, things change. Uh, everything changes uh, for you and me. I mean, his resurrection, it offers us hope. Uh, it offers us new life and new beginnings and forgiveness. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus really changes everything. But my question for you is, has the resurrection changed anything about your life? Um, has it changed your outlook and the way you live? Uh, the choices you make, or, you know, even how you see life. I mean, would you look at your life and say that the resurrection for you, uh, that because of it, you find yourself filled with greater joy or maybe even more faith? And does anyone else or can anyone else say they see that change in you? Well, today, I want to spend some time talking with you about one of Jesus' disciples, a man by the name of Thomas. And I want to look at a couple of things that we see in Thomas that I think just about apply to every single one of us here. Let me ask you this. When you think about Thomas, uh, what's that one word that comes to mind for you? Uh, maybe take a second. Just turn to the person next to you and say, what's that one word that comes to mind when you think about Thomas? Yeah, it's doubts, right? I mean, we all think of doubts. And, uh, you know, in fact, chances are that if you're new today, uh, maybe even new to something like Genesis or new to church, uh, you know, when you think of the name Thomas, I mean, you know his nickname. We all know that his nickname is doubting Thomas. Well, typically when we think of doubts, we think bad. But my question is, are all doubts bad? Um, are questions, you know, that bad? I mean, we've all got doubts. Uh, is it wrong to have these questions or these concerns or even these doubts? Uh, I mean, don't doubts lead to good things too? Uh, look at it like this. I mean, history records plenty of examples, plenty of times when doubts led to great breakthroughs or, or even greater understanding. I mean, think about it. You know, for the longest time, many people believed that the world was flat. Few doubted it, but some did. Um, there was a day when many people believed that it was impossible uh, for a human to run a four-minute mile. I mean, in fact, some doctors believed it was physically impossible. But Roger Bannister doubted it, and he was the first runner to do it. And now the sub-four-minute uh, mile is a standard uh, for any great runner. Uh, Charles Duell was the commissioner of the United States Patent and Trademark Office in the late 1800s. Uh, he's attributed with once saying that everything that's going to be invented has already been invented. Thankfully, people doubted it. Uh, Thomas H. Watson was the chairman of IBM back in the 1940s. He's credited for once saying, I think there's a world market for maybe a total of five computers. Wow. I mean, I mean, chances are that some of you today have five computers on you right now, at least even between you and your family. Or, hey, if someone comes up to you after a service today or maybe out in public and says, hey, get this, you, you know, I guarantee you that in 2013, the Cubs will finally win the World Series. I'm just telling you, it's okay to have your doubts. Doubts can be okay. Well, there's a couple of things that we see in Thomas uh, that I think apply to just about every single one of us here. The first is obvious, and again, it's in your notes, and that is that Thomas had his doubts. Thomas had doubts, and I mean, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12, had his doubts. He had his questions before and after the crucifixion. Uh, look at John 20, 24. It says, Now Thomas, 
also known as Didymus. I wonder why he went by the name Thomas. But one of the 12 uh, was not with uh, the disciples when Jesus came. You know, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples following his resurrection, uh, for reasons we don't know, Thomas wasn't there. And we don't know why. I mean, maybe Thomas was running from, for his life. Uh, maybe Thomas had gone into hiding. Uh, maybe because of the death of Jesus, he decided it's time to get on with my life. And so he's gone in a different direction. I mean, we don't know. I mean, all we know is that he was absent. And the rest of the disciples, they had their time with the resurrected Jesus, and then Jesus leaves, and eventually either the disciples track down Thomas, or he checks in with them, and when they see Thomas, they just can't hold it in. I mean, they were like, Thomas, I mean, you're not going to believe this. He's alive. Jesus is alive. He's come back from the dead. Now, be sensitive if you would. I mean, try and put yourself in Thomas' shoes. I mean, we're not... It's not like we're talking about a doctor losing Jesus on the ER table for a few minutes and then he comes back to life. No, I mean, we're talking about Jesus brutally executed on a Friday and then he comes back to life on a Sunday. And how does Thomas respond to news like this, the news from the disciples? He says, I doubt it. I just can't believe it. Can you relate? I mean, have you been there? I mean, with those same kinds of doubts and questions, I mean, there's a really good chance that for some of you, I mean, you had to overcome some of those obstacles before you could ever believe. I mean, for others of you, uh, maybe you're here today and it's with something like the resurrection that you look at something like that and just say, hey, you know, it's for this reason I, I have such a difficult time believing that that's even possible. Or be real. I mean, even, even if you follow Jesus today, I mean, can we all say, can we all admit that we've all got our questions? I mean, there are doubts... That, that each of us shares or, you know, questions and concerns that come up from time to time. I mean, that's what makes faith so important. Well, that's where Thomas is. I mean, he had these doubts and he couldn't see past them. And honestly, it was challenging for all of the disciples. I mean, something like the resurrection and Jesus coming back to life was inconceivable then. I mean, impossible to believe as it is for many people today. John 20, 25 says it like this. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You see, the challenge is that Thomas saw what they did to Jesus. And so notice how very specifically Thomas says, you know what, I'd have to see the nail marks. I'd have to put my fingers where they nailed his hands I'd have to take my hand and I'd have to put it where they slashed his side. Until then, I'm not buying it. Well, guess what happens? A week later, Thomas is with the disciples again and Jesus shows. I mean, out of nowhere, Jesus appears to Thomas and the rest of the disciples. Look at verse 26. John writes, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You know, now, now what's Thomas going to do? I mean, how's he going to respond in this moment? I mean, Jesus is standing right in front of him. He has to believe now, right? Well, maybe not yet, because look at what happens next. I mean, Jesus goes over to Thomas, and he knows how Thomas is wired, and he knows Thomas has questions, and look at what Jesus says to him. Verse 27, Jesus says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Hey, can we just stop there for a second? Because honestly, 
I don't even know how Jesus would be able to bear, you know, these marks, let alone, you know, put his fingers, you know, where the nails were or his hand uh, into his side. I mean, uh, can any of you relate with me on this uh, when it comes to tooth pulling? Um, I, I can't pull teeth uh, in our house. Uh, anybody relate with something like that? Uh, you know, for example, uh, my little boy Luke uh, is seven years old, and uh, just the other day, I mean, he had this front tooth that was just dangling. I mean, it, it was just hanging there, begging to come out. And so Jenny, uh, she took Luke into the other room, and I knew she was pulling on that tooth, and it just drove me crazy to even be in the other room, the same house, and to know that she was working on that tooth. Jenny pulls the teeth uh, in our house. H how many of you are strong enough you do the tooth pulling in your house? Yeah, let me see them. All right, how many of you are like me and you don't do any of that tooth pulling? I mean, if your kid comes along, it's like, kid, get out of here. Go find someone else to pull your tooth. But seriously, I just love how the evidence Thomas had talked about needing one week before was now standing right in front of him. I mean, I just love how Jesus demonstrates patience and tenderness with Thomas and how he's willing to meet Thomas in his doubts and address those very specific questions. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I wish it were easier to convince others of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I mean, wouldn't it make it easier if we had some pictures of Jesus or maybe some before and after the tomb kind of photos or, or what about some video footage? You know, when, when you think about it, you know, skeptics have raised plenty of questions and doubts over the years, questions about the lack of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it's not new. I mean, people have been raising these questions for 2,000 years now, but you might be surprised to find that there is some great proof out there for the resurrection. I mean, there's convincing evidence out there. I mean, when we talk about the resurrection, I mean, even 2,000 years later, you can highlight at least a few things. I mean, first of all, I mean, you've, you've got the proof of an empty tomb. I mean, one of the challenges of the enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders of the day, is that they had to deal with the fact of an empty tomb. And some reasoned, you know, then and down through the ages that Jesus' body was stolen to make it look like he had risen. But how did that happen? I mean, history records that the governor of Israel, you know, uh, ordered the tomb be sealed and then released a detachment of soldiers to protect it. And at the same time, add to that the disciples are running for their lives now. I mean, how likely is it that any of them were courageous enough to pull off a tomb heist at a volatile time like this? I mean, how in the world does a group of unorganized, unarmed men overcome some of the finest soldiers of Rome? And so how do you resolve the issue of an empty tomb? Well, there's another theory that's been raised to dispute the resurrection of Jesus. It's called the swoon theory. And it's a theory that Jesus didn't really die, but instead, you know, as he was on the cross, he lost consciousness. And while the Roman officials thought he was dead, they took him down and they put him in the tomb. And it was in the tomb that Jesus nursed back, you know, nursed himself, you know, his own wounds, regained his own strength, and then finally emerged. But look at it like this. I mean, even with all of the advancements in medicine today, I mean, would something like that be possible even today? And then how about 2,000 years ago? I mean, seriously, I mean, how does anyone survive 40 lashes? I mean, did you know that most people never even endured that physical torture, never even made it to the cross? Or just to make sure, you know, that he was dead, you know, following that time on the cross, they took a sword and they slashed his side. I mean, come on. I mean, how does Jesus recover from wounds like these? And even if it were possible, how does a recovering Jesus then escape a sealed tomb? 
There's another proof. The second proof is the proof of the eyewitnesses. You know, the, it's the number of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection, and, and they really offer compelling proof for that resurrection. I mean, the numbers, you know, grew more and more each passing day. And well, I think it's interesting how the gospel writer and historian Mark records the events surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how he specifically mentions the witnesses involved. Um, you know, Tim Keller really opened my eyes to this uh, in his book, The King's Cross. Uh, he and others, other scholars, agree that Mark's style of writing uh, is very intentional. In fact, the way that Mark records and the way that he writes suggests that he is writing a historical account and not simply recording legend. Uh, according to Keller, you know, Mark's account of Jesus' death and his resurrection reads like an official death certificate of that particular day and time. And one of the key elements in his writing has to do with the way that he includes the names of three witnesses, three women, as the primary witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And, and this is fascinating because in this particular day and culture, women were considered second-class citizens. And because of the sexism in this day, people wouldn't believe a woman's testimony. In fact, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. And so here's the question. If the disciples were trying to pull off the greatest hoax that this world has ever seen, why in the world would Mark have taken a chance on the testimony of three women? Again, in this day, their opinion carried no weight. And so why not three men? Unless it's true unless it's exactly how it happened. And not only did Jesus appear to these women, but also to the disciples, and then to Thomas, and then eventually more than 500 other people saw Jesus. They see Jesus alive after his resurrection. Again, there are many proofs for the resurrection of Jesus. How about just one more? And in my opinion, this is probably the most convincing of all. Proof number three is the number of changed lives. It's the countless number of changed lives. I mean, think about it. I mean, so many of the eyewitnesses were changed forever, uh, including people like Thomas and the other disciples. You know, when, when, when Jesus died, they, the disciples ran. I mean, they ran and hid behind locked doors, fearing for their own lives, but, but something changed in these men. And, and you're going to see this. You're going to see some of this as we continue reading in the story over the next few weeks together, and, and how these men went from being cowards to very bold men and do you know that history records that many of them went on to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives all over the world? And along the way, and in the end, many of them were brutally beaten, imprisoned, and finally executed for their faith in Jesus. And the best example of all is Peter. I mean, Peter denied Jesus three times before his death, but following the resurrection, following his encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he went on to live boldly for Christ until he was arrested and eventually crucified upside down. And what event changed him from a coward to courageous? Could it have been the resurrected Jesus and what that encounter did to him? And what do we owe these changed lives 2,000 years later? Well, would we be here today even worshiping as one church if it weren't for their testimony, if it weren't for their bold faith? Paul Little once said it like this, you know, men will die for what they believe to be true, but who would die for what they know to be a lie? You know, so many 
have given their lives for Jesus Christ over the years, but I, that, that, that it causes me to stop and think, would I do the same? Would I do the same for Jesus? The truth of the resurrected Savior? How about you? Would you live the same way? You know, back to Thomas. Um, can you just imagine what it was like? I mean, in that moment and all the pressure and Jesus standing right in front of him and you know, Thomas has been listening to others talk and describe what it was like and how Jesus is alive, and, and yet Thomas still doubts. And, and Thomas is standing now before Jesus, and Thomas knows that Jesus knows, and now Jesus holds out his hands, and he says to Thomas, Thomas, see my hands, touch them for yourself, stop doubting, and believe. And Thomas had no choice in that moment, and he wasn't able to doubt any longer. I'd like to ask you this today. What questions do you have? What questions, uh, doubts, and concerns do you have in your life? I mean, what's standing in the way of you believing in him? You know, I just think it's interesting. It's fascinating to see that Thomas made no secret of his doubts. I mean, he got his doubts out in the open, and he shared them with others. He shared them with his friends. Um, if you have doubts, if you have questions and concerns today, can I encourage you with this? Have you ever thought about sharing those doubts and concerns with someone else? Uh, maybe opening up uh, with a trusted close friend and sharing some of those. Uh, maybe you're a part of a small group and, and you might have the confidence to share some of those questions and concerns uh, in that moment. Maybe even with the person who invited you to Genesis. Maybe the person that you came with today. Or, or maybe your uh, concerns and questions would lead you uh, to kind of set out on your own to do some studying and some research for yourself. You know, uh, Lee Strobel has written some great books, and uh, we've provided some of those resources in your worship program of not only his books, but maybe other helpful tools and resources, too, for people uh, with questions. Uh, Lee Strobel was a writer with the Chicago Tribune, and uh, he once set out to disprove Christianity, but what happened is he ended up running into the resurrected Christ along the way, and it changed him, and he believed, and he's a pastor today. Or what about this? Have you ever thought about taking your questions and your concerns to the Lord? I mean, that might be the greatest step the greatest move you ever make in your life to even begin by writing down some of those questions and concerns on paper, uh, maybe offering them up to God in prayer, but to take them before God. I mean, that's kind of what Thomas did. I mean, we see that and we see how Jesus met him in his questions and he met him in those doubts. And Jesus wasn't intimidated by his questions. And do you know what? And I pray that you find comfort in this. He's not intimidated by your questions and your doubts either. And what I love about Jesus is just how in his own special way, he was willing to address each and every one of these with Thomas. Would you be willing to believe today that God could do the very same for you? I mean, would you be willing to take your doubts and your questions and even take them before the Lord? I mean, see it for yourself. I mean, Jesus wasn't hard on Thomas. I mean, he knows that some people need to doubt before they believe. And if doubts lead to questions, and questions lead to answers, and answers lead to a response, well, then doubts can do some very great work in us. Jesus isn't intimidated with your questions. He's not overwhelmed by your doubts. 
And I'm praying today that even today you might find encouragement in some of these great words that come right out of the Old Testament. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, when it says, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with you all your heart and soul. You know, God spoke these words many years ago, well in advance of some very difficult days that he knew that his people would go through. But they are good and they are still true today that if you seek the Lord, even with your doubts, and with your questions, I'm confident that you will find him and that your life will never again be the same. You know, I'm afraid that, uh, that sometimes Thomas gets a bad rap. I mean, because what we remember him for is, like Paul said, it's his doubts, right? But, uh, but Thomas's story doesn't end with doubt. In fact, we see in, in John 20, 28, that when Thomas uh, encounters the resurrected Jesus, he responds to Jesus in the way that every one of us should, as he says, my Lord and my God. He says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, he had his doubts, but he overcame those doubts. And it's in your notes if you're taking them. But please see that when, when he overcame them, uh, Thomas called him Lord. And let's don't pass over Thomas's response as some kind of just automatic religious jargon, like it just came out of his mouth, like when you and I pass each other and we say, hey, how are you? And we don't even really listen to the answer, right? It's just what comes out of our mouth. I think sometimes we read this and we think those kinds of things for the disciples. No, Thomas's words are very specific and they're very intentional. That, that word Lord in the ancient world, it was a term that was used by servants and even by slaves towards their master. It's a word that means, you know, I, I recognize that you're in authority over me. It's a, it's a term of submission. And so as Thomas uh, interacts with the resurrected Jesus and he says, my Lord, my God, he's recognizing his place in relation to the resurrected Jesus. You know, Jesus' invitation was simple. He said, come and follow me. And he's extended that same invitation to all of us. And calling him Lord, calling yourself, calling myself a Christian, it means so much more than, than just believing or, or just showing up for church on a Sunday. It means we reorder every aspect of our lives, uh, you know, around following this resurrected Jesus. It means surrendering every part of our lives to him and for him. Jesus' Lord means that everything, absolutely everything, falls under his reign. It's our relationships. It's our finances. It means that we find our, our meaning and our purpose in Jesus, not in, in other things. I think Francis Schaeffer, he said it best when he said, if Christ is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. So Thomas, he encountered the resurrected Jesus, and his response was to call him Lord. But not only did he say it, but he lived differently. He lived changed for the rest of his life, fully devoted to the risen Christ. And I wonder today, is that your response as well? Has that been your response to the resurrected Jesus? And if not, will it be your response from this day forward? Will today be the day that, that you lay down your doubts, lay down your fears, lay down your control, and you turn to Jesus and you say, my Lord and my God? You know, the Bible says that if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved and maybe you're sitting here this morning and you believe in your heart, 
but you've never confessed that with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. And like Thomas, you're ready to do that this morning. I want to let you know that at the end of the service this morning, I'm going to be up front here. We're going to have some other folks up front who would love to talk to you more about what a relationship with Jesus Christ means and what it means for Jesus to truly be the Lord of your life. And I want to invite you to, to come down front at the end of the service and, uh, and to confess him as Lord.